0: I've talked before about the fallacy of what we call the information age. People demand more and more information, but they don't use the information they have in any meaningful way very often. In a previous talk, I gave the example of a magic eye drawing, one where you cross your eyes and you see a 3D image. Now, unless you know that secret, you could analyze the patterns you know, using computer software and any kind of meta-analysis, and you're not really going to come up with anything meaningful. You have to see the information in the right way. It's p- comparable to seeing a list of figures and seeing that same list of figures as a graph. Trends and other things become very obvious when they're seen as a graph, which aren't so obvious when they're seen simply as a list of figures. You can get more information still by producing a 3D graph. Now, of course, we see it on a 3D and a 2D screen, but in this world, we've got very accustomed to processing 3D images on a 2D screen, so we can handle that we can't see 4D images. There's no way of visualising that. I did have a friend who was working on visualising four dimensions, but it's a long haul. And if you could see 4D patterns, many patterns that aren't obvious even in a 3D graph would become obvious in a 4D graph. Now, this is also applicable to multi-dimensions. We see the results of causes and effect in three dimensions. We are unaware of the triggers that are behind that in four, five, six or seven dimensions. They are hidden from us, usually. I mean, they can be opened up and I've explained how. But for most people they are unaware of it and For most people nowadays, they'd even deny that it exists. They talk about believing what they see and other such nonsense. Now, the way you access real information or real knowledge through information is with metaphor and analogy and simile and these kind of things. Because that enables you to see... A situation in a different context. And I have seen many, many arguments on the web where somebody says something completely ridiculous and somebody simply turns it around, taking that same argument but applying it in a different context and the absurdity of it becomes clear. One method we use is hypnotherapist is we use a lot of stories the reason for this is because when you listen to the story your mind is engaged on the story and the message gets through subliminally and i've talked before about what's called the reticular activation system it bypasses the reticular activation system so here's a story about why we tell stories there was a, a site, a building site. And um, often with these building sites, they close them up at night and they put a security guard on because they're worried about people breaking in and stealing things. So every night the foreman, after most of the workers have gone home and before it's locked up, the foreman would go around the site and he'd collect up lotus, load of you know, stuff that's lying around and put it in the wheelbarrow. And then uh, he'd reel that wheelbarrow out through the door past the security guard. But this was going on every night and the security guard got a bit suspicious. So he starts searching the wheelbarrow. He didn't find anything. It's all just rubbish. And the, the foreman assured him that he was just taking rubbish out to be dumped but the security guard got more and more suspicious. But every time he searched that, Wilbur never found anything. So after a while, the site's, the building's finished, the site closes up. And sometime after that, the security guards in a pub and he sees the old foreman there. So he goes up to him and he says, look, you know, there's a water under the bridge now. It doesn't really matter. But you remember that site you were working on, and you used to wheel that wheelbarrow every night, and I used to search it. And place says, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah." He says, "You know, we were convinced you were stealing stuff, but we never found anything." And the farmer says, "Yeah, I was stealing." And the sec- the security guard says, "Well, what were you stealing?" He says, "We never found anything. We searched those wheelbarrows." He says, "I was stealing wheelbarrows." And this is the way the stories work. We're so busy trying to analyze them and search for meaning that the real meaning can come through in a pure form, I suppose you could say. Now, the world is built on metaphor, it's not built on logic. Logic's a meaningless process, and I think I've talked about this before with deductive logic, we say if A is so and B is so, then C must be so. It's a construct of language. It has nothing to do with reality. The world is not logical. Our dreams aren't logical. Our dreams are based on metaphor because they have contact with other dimensions and other ways of seeing things. And in the old days, of course, people were much more in touch with the divine. The idea that as above, so below, to try and create heaven on earth, the divine paradise on earth that we can get a glimpse of, so that when we die, we go there in heaven. That's pretty well got lost nowadays. But this is why, in the old times, and I'm going back maybe a thousand years, most of Europe and Asia was built on small kingdoms. Some of these were tiny, maybe just a a couple of towns. Others were huge, covering what would now be seen as half a country or even more. The kings, usually kings, were very different. Some were highly just, some were cruel, some put emphasis on building armies and invading other kingdoms to expand their territory. Others were simply content with putting up defence and spending resources on education or commerce or training or whatever. But you can imagine a country, a rather big kingdom, and the king is just, fairly just. But of course he has people working for him. So his minions go out and they collect taxes on his behalf. And they go to these outlying villages, many, many miles, many miles from the capital. And they can intimidate people. They take more than they should. And the people don't know any better. They assume this is from the king, but it's actually illegal tax collectors who are doing it for their own benefit. Maybe they're not even illegal, maybe they're collecting what they think they ought to, but times and situations have changed and people are unable to give it. So you can imagine one of these villages, finally the villagers get together and they know they have to appoint somebody to go to the capital. But this is many, many weeks, maybe even months of of travelling. It takes huge resources to get there and to get back. There's no guarantee that if he arrives at the capital and is not ambushed on the way, that he's going to be able to see the king. It's all strange. Nobody's ever been to the capital. Nobody even knows what it's like. All they know is strange stories about the streets being lined with gold and other such wonders. But they know that really they have no choice. This is the only option. So they appoint somebody. They get their meager resources together and provide him with some resources and maybe a lodestone so that he can find his way. And he goes down the road. And it's many, many months of travel. There's no mao, people at the village have no idea whether he's alive or dead, whether it's successful or what happened. But after many, many weeks, or even months of travel, he arrives at the capital. But they don't even let him in through the main gate. He's ragged, he's obviously a country bumpkin. He has no idea about manners, protocol or anything. And he gets to the main gate and the guards have discretion about whether they're going to allow him in or not. But he explains the situation to a guard. And the guard takes pity on him. He says, well, I'll help you. The king has a public forum every Thursday afternoon, just afternoon, and anybody is welcome to come there. But there's always more people who want to be seen. than he has time available. And you have to go in the right way. You have to dress in the right way. You have to know how to... Approach people, you have to know how to talk to people. You can't just roll up as a country bumpkin, and in any case, you'll probably be so nervous you'll be unable even to express what you need. So, him and some other people will put this country bumpkin up for a while. They give him some good clothes and they teach him and educate him in the ways of the court until finally is able to turn up on a Thursday afternoon. And maybe that first time, or maybe some subsequent time, he catches the king's eye. And the king calls him over and explains that he's travelled many, many months, that he's come from a village in the far corners of his kingdom. And he explains that he's not doubting the king, His complaint isn't with the king, who he knows to be just. His complaint is that people who purport to be doing the king's duty, or maybe even are doing the king's duty, are putting an unfair burden on the people, so they elected him to come. Now, a king is the representative of the divine. We talk about the kingdom of heaven. And the king is the representation, is God's representative on earth. This has all got lost nowadays. Kings are self-appointed, or they're appointed by governments. But in those days, kings were divinely appointed, or the families were appointed, and this was passed down through the generations. And the king had the ability to ignore his own laws. He isn't bound by the laws that he makes. There's a law that every man, woman, so and well above a certain age or working person has to contribute a certain amount to the coffers. But the king could decide, no, you know, this is obviously onerous on you, you don't have to do it. The king could Appoint people with horses and money, and they dress the country bumpkin up and they put him in a horse where he's accompanied by soldiers so he can't be attacked. And armed with uh, the soldiers and with a huge amount of money. They go back to the village and also there are people who can show them how to use that money wisely, how to do things so the money isn't wasted. The king is the representative of God on earth. And when we pray to God, God is able to break his own laws the laws of so-called laws of physics the laws that seem to govern our worldly existence the rising of the sun the rising of the moon the day to day all these things are covered by divine law by divine decree and god can if he wants simply change them we can decide that no these laws aren't going to be there for this person, for this instance, in this way. But we have to learn how to address God. We're like country bumpkins who turn up and we say, oh, I want a new bike or I want a new car. You're not going to get anywhere. You have to learn how to address God. You have to put the effort in. And you have to do it with an air of humility. The country bumpkins, arrived at the court wasn't doing it for himself, he was doing it for his village. We have to have a humanity to be outside of ourselves, families can do that, Uh, a father or a mother, ideally will go to great lengths to protect their children. Nowadays, of course, the atheists have even lost that and they have bought kids before they're born, but let's not go there. But in a correctly governed world, in a divinely inspired world, there is a sense of magnanimousness, of doing something for others, not for yourself. And those prayers will get answered but we have to learn how to pray. I have spoken many, many times about meditation. And meditation is the ability to be able to observe and to a certain extent control your own thoughts and the corresponding emotions that go with them. If you do not meditate and you have a mind that is simply out of control, you won't have any concentration. You'll be like the country bumpkin who arrives in the city and is so overwhelmed by the goods and the people and the markets and what's being offered to him, that he falls for the first scam and he finishes up on the streets and never achieves his purpose. This is what the average person is like. They don't have the concentration to pray correctly because they've just got minds that are out of control. Now God is, well it's said of, of God that his mercy outweighs his wrath and even given that, God can see through it and he can give miracles, sometimes we see people where miracles have happened and we think, why did that person have it? What was, what was going on? Why did this other person who seems to be going through hell and seems to have a good heart and yet she died in squalor and yet this other person was given massive assistance? We don't see the big picture. We see this three and a half dimensional world. We see things in terms of a ridiculous notion of cause and effect, which covers a very, very short time span. Because we're not aware of, you know, usually more than a year ago in the course of events of things. Certainly, if we look at a lifetime, you know, it might go back a few years, you know, they were abused as a kid or something. And we say, how unfair is that? But we don't see the big picture. We don't see where they go after they die. We don't see what brought them into this world, into that situation. Because people, to a certain extent, select their time, their place, and their relatives, to a certain extent. It's said that you can't choose your time of birth, your place of birth, or your relatives, and you can't choose how you're going to die. But there are forces and and emotional attachments that lead you to be born in a particular place and in a particular circumstance thank you for listening thank you for listening you can email me Phil at braham.net. You can look at my website, philip with one L Braham is B R A H A M. And if you send an email, put a podcast in a subject so it doesn't get lost. Thank you. I'm really, really good at supper, and I'm happy you're